Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 23. Mark 7, 1 to 23. And I've titled this message, The Heart of the Matter. Father, we just ask now that your word would penetrate our hearts, Lord. Father, you would help us to have full devotion of mind and heart right now, Father, to take in your word. Speak to us, Lord, as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Today's passage deals with the human heart. It's not about the human heart in the sense of ventricles and the aorta and arteries and valves. But this passage deals with the human soul, the heart, which is where real defilement comes from. In Jeremiah 17.9, we are told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is capable of doing crazy things and is incurable apart from God performing a spiritual transplant in our hearts. And he searches the heart. He searches the mind and knows exactly how to continue transforming our hearts as we yield our hearts to him. As we yield to his word and allow his spirit to teach us and to transform us. Today's passage also deals with the contrast between outward religious acts that can come across as spiritual and the inward defilements of of the heart that God does know goes on within us. In verses 1 through 5, we have a group of Pharisees and scribes pursuing Jesus to come and discredit him. Look at verse 1. He says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. The Pharisees and scribes mentioned here in verse 1, they come from Jerusalem down uh, to Gennesaret, which is where Jesus and his disciples were at this time. Chapter 6, verse 53 confirms this. And this journey that these guys took down to where Jesus was was about 100 miles. It was between 80 and 100 miles. And I mention this because they did not come all this way to learn from Jesus or they did not come all this way because they were hungry for the gospel. Because that would, that would have been great. That would have been a great effort to do. But these Pharisees and scribes came all the way to oppose Jesus and to discredit him. The Pharisees were the Jewish religious party that laid extreme importance on the strictest outward observances of the law. They included the rabbinical traditions and regulations and professed to build this protecting hedge about the law. They were known as the separated ones who kept the the minute details of the law and the traditions of the elders concerning the law. The scribes were the professional teachers of the law of the Old Testament. They were the experts in the exposition of the law. They would interpret the law and make application of it 
and define, for instance, what does it really mean to, to wash? And throughout time, these guys had made all these rules and regulations that were called the tradition of the elders. These guys started out with good intentions. But all this got so out of hand that the tradition of the elders became more important than the law itself. It got to the point where there was actually more arguing than teaching the law. And they had become very self-righteous and had developed this showy formalism in observing ceremonies like fasting and almsgiving and these long prayers and tithes. So this delegation came down from Jerusalem to spy on Jesus and to discredit him with the people and to ultimately find cause for legal action against him. And at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, his popularity was increasing greatly. Hundreds had been healed. Many who had been demon-possessed were delivered. 5,000 that were hungry were miraculously fed. And it's amazing that even though people were being healed and helped and delivered and fed, the scribes and the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem just to try to discredit Jesus and his disciples. And the reason was because of envy and jealousy. The Pharisees and scribes were jealous of the popularity and attention that Jesus was receiving. So they looked to find fault in him in something. And finding fault is many times the result of envy and jealousy. When people begin to find fault in someone, many times it's an indication of the person's own envy and jealousy. As a person looks to discredit or shed negative light on another person. Galatians 5.15 warns us, If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Even as these religious leaders were now looking to devour Jesus, jealousy and envy will devour and eat at a person if we are not careful. So they show up and they see some of Jesus' disciples eating bread with unwashed hands and they find fault. Verses 3 and 4 give us some examples of their religious rituals. Look at verse 3. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat, unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. The washing had nothing to do with personal hygiene, but it was all about ceremonial rinsing. God had prescribed certain ceremonial washings as part of the covenant given through Moses, but they were more outward symbols of spiritual truths. The early ritual of hand washing originated with God's instruction that priests had to wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle. Exodus 30, 19 and 20 confirms this. It says, For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and feet and water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an, uh, burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. So the intention 
behind this was this ceremonial action was that clean hands and feet represented a, clear, a pure heart, without which no one enters the tabernacle, the presence of God. But throughout time, this got way out of hand. Throughout the time, the, the priest, the, the priest ritual of hand washing, it came to include all of the people. And this tradition turned a simple ceremony into this heavy, rigid detail that in the course of time involved all of the people's life. And it got to the point where hand washing had become so specifically outlined that the amount of water, the position of the hands, even the direction where the water was flowing, they were given all these strict, rigid regulations. And they even repeated this over and over sometimes. And as a result, cleansing and spirituality depended on the kind of the, the perfect attention you paid to the outward details. So the Pharisees, they did not eat until they had completed the required washings. And the purpose was to remove any defilement caused by having touched something unclean, like a Gentile or even a dead body. Some of the rabbis taught that a demon could attach itself to people's hands while they were asleep. And if it was not ceremonially washed away, he could enter the body through the food touched by defiled hands. And so you have here at the beginning of verse 4, it says, So when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, because they're afraid something's going to attack them. Notice what the end of verse 4 tells us. It says, and there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. These guys were washing all the time. Now, praise God that we, you know, have you guys seen the uh, bacterial stuff we have here for your hands, the antibacterial stuff? And in the markets you have that sometimes. Now for the, and that's great. I mean, that's great. But these guys were out of control. Um... And it was all outward. Notice what the end of verse 4 tells us. It says, And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups. Oh, I read that. And pitchers. They were washing all the time. They thought that whoever paid the most attention to the external observances was considered this super spiritual or you're the holiest because you do these things. And what happened is that the idea of real inner purity had become so distorted by the system of external washings that it was just all about the outward. And that is a danger. There's a tragedy that these types of, of external observances can have on a person because you can be self-deceived and think that external movements makes you more spiritual instead of having a purity of heart. In another occasion, Jesus rebuked some of these guys. In Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are, are full of dead men's bones and un, all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So it's not about outward observances. But it's about a personal encounter with Jesus. 
and having a real meaningful relationship with him where he changes our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. And then we grow and continue in that in his word and allow his Holy Spirit to continue that transformation in our lives. In verse 5, we have their protest. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? These guys don't even try to hide the fact that they are accusing Jesus of what was against the tradition of the elders instead of, the, of God's law. They say there, your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders. They're more concerned about that. They criticize the disciples. But this was intended to be a bad reflection upon Jesus in that their criticism, they're trying to make it look like Jesus was not teaching his disciples how to conduct themselves properly. So this confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes, it sets the stage for Jesus to confront and teach on the the nature and the real source of purity. In verses 6 to 13, we have the response by Jesus. Jesus takes the Pharisees' accusation and he lets them know how totally wrong their position was. And Jesus doesn't even try to make excuses for his disciples. He doesn't say, well, they didn't have a chance to wash. We've been out on the road all day. I'll make sure they do it next time. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't even try to get into a discussion with them. Well, let's talk about these washings. Why do you think they're so important? He doesn't do that. Instead, he confronts the Pharisees strongly and directly for hassling them about trivial matters while breaking God's law and the more important matters by their tradition. Look at verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 29, 13. And he calls them hypocrites. In other words, he's telling them, You guys are actors. That's what the word hypocrite means, actually means. The word hypocrite referred to the masks that were used by actors on a stage where you have one that was happy and one that was sad. You might have seen that like on a playbill when you go to a play or in the theater. Um, And it represented that the actor did not really feel underneath what the mask looked like, but the mask showed the role that he was playing. And Jesus is basically saying to them, you guys are play actors. And Jesus is in essence telling them that they were what they are saying with their mouths is a far distant cry from the intent of their heart. And that's convicting. We can sometimes honor the Lord with our lips, but our hearts can be far from him. We can sometimes be in church singing the songs with our lips, but our hearts are way out there thinking about work, or the things I need to get done, or what we're going to eat after church. And we can go through outward acts of worship with our lips, but our hearts can be far from the Lord. And there's actually no real devotion, but just outward movement. And we have to be careful. 
that the same tendencies that Jesus is addressing does not creep into our lives. So Jesus shifts the issue from the ceremonial sin that they were trying to lay on his disciples to the spiritual hypocrisy that was really going on. What started out as a legitimate spiritual symbol, which they started out with, became a stage for play acting. Look at what verse 7 says, what Jesus says to them. It says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying to them, You teach as God's word what men have said. And even though you go through this outward display, and even though it's outwardly meticulous, it's all done in vain. Notice the, in verse 7 there, the word worship, in, and in vain they worship me. The, word, the Greek word for worship here in verse 7, is a, it's a verb that means to revere or to reverence. And worship is a daily action that is aimed at showing reverence to God by obedience to his word. Here in verse 7, he's talking about worship as obedience to the word of God. The Greek scholar Lenski, he said, reverent worship sets, excuse me, reverent worship rests on God's word and is shaped and controlled by that word. I like that. It's not about outward acts that we engage in as it is the conditions of our heart in worship to God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, he says, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus lets them know that they're more concerned with their traditions than the commandments of men. And guys, this is also a great verse to use against your wife if she wants you to wash the dishes. You hold the tradition of men, the washing. In verses 9 to 13, Jesus confronts them on how it is hypocritical to use their tradition to justify sin and how it is sin to pervert the tradition from good to evil uses. In verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift from, to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. And it's interesting because, again, Jesus doesn't give them an answer or an explanation to the accusation that the Pharisees and scribes were giving them. In essence, he's dismissing their their accusations as irrelevant. And what he does is he nails them by telling them how they reject the commandment of God that they may keep their tradition. And Jesus gets them with how they invalidate the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother as a failure of breaking the commandment of God. He uses a great illustration that they could not deny. In verse 11, he mentions the practice of Corbin. The word Corbin meant gift. It referred to a gift specifically offered to God where a material possession 
could be set apart as a gift for holy use. At some point, a tradition had developed that allowed a person to call his tradition, his possession, Corbin. And as a result, he was dedicating that possession to God. But throughout time, the tradition of Corbin, it went to this extreme legalistic distortion where the interpretation of Corbin was misrepresented with the commandment, honor your father and mother. So if a a man's father or mother asked for financial help, the person could tell them, sorry, that, you know, that was mine and what was, uh, that was mine and that might have been helped you, but it's been given to God now. It's Corbin. And apart from what the person might have given to the temple or to the synagogue, the Corbin possessions were kept for that person's own possession. And if he decided to keep them for his own purposes, tradition allowed him to do so just by declaring at Corbin. So what had happened is this tradition had become so out of whack that it did not end up serving God or the family, but the selfish interests of the person making the declaration. And he could avoid giving up his possessions in order to help his parents and declare his possessions set apart or unusable. But as soon as he wanted to use them for himself, he can reverse the vow. It was hypocritical. And overall, this tradition of the elders got so distorted that it invalidated the word of God. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 13. He says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. The word of God was not applicable to the situation. And we see this happening today in our society. In our society, which rejects the word of God now. Our society rejects the word by running the scriptures out of the schools. And government through the laws of man. The Pharisees and scribes, they knew the Ten Commandments very well. They were very educated and were considered the highest authorities on the scriptures as well as tradition. So they could see that this tradition was in direct violation of God's commandment to honor honor father and mother. And Jesus calls them on it. And Jesus calls them hypocrites for substituting ritual, outer ritual for inner spirituality. And it's kind of interesting as I looked at this is that you get no response from the Pharisees and scribes. And I figure they probably went back to Jerusalem with enough evidence that Jesus had challenged their traditions and they can give the recommendation of death. In verses 14 to 16, we have Jesus explaining his answer to the multitudes on the real source of uncleanness. Jesus uses the confrontation with the Pharisees as an opportunity to, uh, to teach another spiritual truth to the multitudes as an illustration. Uh, look at verse 14. It says, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand 
There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The multitude mentioned here in verse 14, they had probably been standing near and heard the exchange between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus. So he called them to him so he can explain what he had just said about unscriptural traditions and empty worship. And Jesus says to them, notice he says there, hear and understand. In other words, listen carefully, pay close attention. He's stating the seriousness of what he's about to tell them. It wasn't that Jesus, what Jesus said would be hard for them to understand, but he knew that it would be hard for them to accept. He's going, listen to me carefully. Hear and understand about what I'm about to say. Because this was radical for the Hebrew mind. The, 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 the legalism had been so ingrained in their minds that it was hard for them to receive this. So the Jews of that day, for the Jews of, of that day, this was radical. One commentator put it this way. He said, in laying down the principle that uncleanness comes from within and not from without, Jesus' pronouncement stated a truth uncommon in contemporary Judaism, which was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. Crazy what's going on here. The radicalness of what Jesus said is not difficult for us to grasp, not us, because we have the full-blown New Testament revelation here. But it must have blown their minds on what Jesus is saying here to them. And there were probably many in this crowd who were, were convicted by what Jesus said to the religious leaders. And, and there were probably others who were taken by that. And sometimes the biggest stumbling blocks to salvation, it, it's not understanding it, but it's not wanting to accept it. I know that for a long time, I did not want to accept salvation, even though I understood it. But I didn't want to accept it. I had my little traditions and I had my my little uh, religious movements. You know, after I'd get home at the end of the night from partying and stuff, I'd lay there and say, I got to say, now I lay me down. You know, and that was just outward. But my heart was polluted. So Jesus says, hear and understand. And Jesus gives a simple illustration based on everyday experience of people. He says, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what comes out of the mouth is what defiles a man. You cannot be spiritually defiled by what you eat, is what Jesus is basically saying. Spiritual defilement is a matter of the inside, not the outside. And he's telling the multitude to not be misled by the foolish traditions that they had been taught. Jesus is basically saying, um, washing your hands before you eat has nothing to do with making you undefiled. It's the evil in a person's heart that defiles them. 
And what the Lord is concerned about is that his people do not deceive themselves and go through the outward motion and yet there's defilement from within. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 says, uh, Paul says there, do, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And he says, which temple you are. I love that verse. That verse has always impacted me because when you realize that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, and then he says, I'm going to house my Holy Spirit in you. That, to me, is, is just the craziest thing. He wants to live inside of me through his Holy Spirit. And the reason I share that is because I don't want to hurt that. I don't want to defile that which is inside of me. Now, I'm not talking about perfection, but man, when you let that minister to you and impact you with that truth, at least you're going to guard and say, Lord, I don't want to hurt the Lord. I've had that dream. I've had that dream where I did something that I used to do when I was in the world, and I wake up and I go, oh my gosh, that was a dream. It wasn't real. And I praise God. I go, oh, so glad it was a dream. It's a serious issue for Christians to defile themselves because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. And as we live on this crazy planet, you guys, as Christians, we have to continue to grow in the likeness of our Savior and Lord. And we got to be people, as Second Peter 3.14 says, to be diligent, to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. To be diligent, pursuing that. So as Jesus said there, may we have ears to hear. In verses 17 to 23, we have Jesus further explaining to the disciples his dealings with the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at verse 17. He says, When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Jesus and his disciples, they go into the house, and many believe that this house could have been a home where they were staying uh, in, in Capernaum. But they were away from the crowd, and the Jewish leaders who came from Jerusalem, and his disciples, they want a further explanation about what Jesus said to the crowd concerning defilement. And uh, it's kind of interesting because it makes you wonder if the disciples, you know, they kind of didn't want to look stupid, you know, in front of the other people, in front of the crowd. So they waited till they were alone with Jesus. And uh, as I saw, I wonder if that was going on. And I can relate to these guys because I see Jesus patient as he was patient with them, his patience with me. So James 1.5 tells us, if any man, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And our Lord is so good to put up with us, you guys, with our lack of understanding. And Jesus spells it out again in more depth in verses 18 to 20. Look at what he says, verse 18. And, and you, are you thus without understanding also? 
Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter the heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. So the disciples, they're they're kind of confused. And they ask Jesus about what it means, what he means. and And Jesus gives them a quick lesson in anatomy. He uses a physical principle to illustrate a spiritual principle. He uses it as an analogy about eating something and how it doesn't defile, it doesn't go into the heart. It goes into the stomach and it's eliminated. And he scolds the disciples for inquiring about what he has just said. Did you see that? He tells them, are you without understanding also? In other words, he's saying, are you like my critics? That question indicated that the disciples were were lacking in understanding, like the religious leaders. Jesus also says to them in the middle of of, of verse 18, notice he said, Do you not perceive? Perceive means to notice with the sense of receiving mental impressions. The traditions had been so pushed so strongly by the religious leaders that they had been so deeply embedded in the disciples and the people. And it's like that sometimes. Sometimes old ideas, old habits are hard to shake off. Also, by Jesus stating in verse 18 that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him, in in essence, he's declaring all foods clean. That was probably shocking. It had to be for the disciples and the people to hear this because the dietary laws were one of the most sacred things for the Jews of that day. And even though Jesus scolded the disciples, he still took the time to correct their lack of understanding. In the next few verses, he develops his teaching about what defiles a man by giving further insight about the truth to the disciples. In verses 21 and 22, we get to the heart of the matter. Jesus, now he's going to the core here. We get to what is contained in the heart. Look at what Jesus declares in verses 21 and 22. It says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, Deaths, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Notice Jesus says there, he says, for from within, from within the inner being, the secret intents of the heart. He's further explaining what he means by that which goes out. Then Jesus says, out of the heart of men, for from within, out of the heart of men. He's not speaking of the notorious criminal or the the criminal in jail. He's speaking of all mankind, out of the heart of men. All of us. Rich or poor, young or old, educated or uneducated. All of us, by nature, have a heart as Jesus is describing here in verses 21 and 22. The seeds of all this lies within us. 
but only by the power of God and the grace of God can we have these tendencies defeated. Only by the transforming forgiveness that Jesus offers can this ugliness be defeated. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, and he says, proceed evil thoughts. That means bad, wicked, harsh deliberations. Well-considered thoughts and reasonings, evil imaginations. Kind of removes the idea that a person is, uh, that, that a person does not realize what actually goes into their heart. You know, when you hear people, they oh, I didn't know what I was doing. It includes the evil way of thinking, feeling, or acting. One person put it this way. He said, thoughts are the parents of deeds. Our thought life reveals us. Our thoughts reveal an evil heart. 1 Peter 3.9 tells us that we are not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. In the middle of verse 21, Jesus says, Out of the heart proceed, and he lays out adulteries. Sexual activity with someone other than a spouse. Adultery, you guys, is a very selfish sin. Because it doesn't take into account all the people that are destroyed and affected by it. Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Jesus goes on and says, Out of the heart of man proceeds fornication. It's the Greek word pornea. It means sex before marriage. The same word was used when Jesus accused, uh, Jesus was, that word was used against Jesus when they said that he was born of fornication. Ephesians 5.3 exhorts us, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And this applies to all of us, but I just want to address single people, young people. Beware, be very careful. Because our world and the standard of our society is so lowered that fornication is commonplace. It's no big deal anymore. You know, you now have mama, daddy, and all this stuff, you know, and it's crazy. There's no shame, there's no conviction. We now have movies and TV shows that are centered on fornication and adultery. That's the premise of a lot of these TV programs nowadays. You need to put on the full armor of God continually. Hebrews 13.4 sums all of the, what Jesus just said here. He sums it up in Hebrews 13.4. He says, marriage is honorable among all. Intimacy is not bad when it's in the context of marriage. And Jesus says that. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The end of verse 21, Jesus says, murderers. That comes from within. 
It means to kill a person unjustly, taking a person's life, homicide, to slay someone, premeditated, deliberate, intentional, not accidental. But even in Matthew, if you look at Matthew 5, Jesus takes it even further and he says murder begins with anger. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall, not commit, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 1 John three fifteen says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we might be okay on the outside and say, well, I've never killed anybody. But how are we doing with anger? How are we doing on the inside? And it's the same with adultery. It can happen in the heart. And Jesus is the only remedy for our hearts. Jesus continues stating the evils that come from within. Look at verse 22. Deaths, he mentions. It's the Greek word klope. This is where we get the, the word, our English word kleptomania, kleptomaniac. It means stealing, taking what does not belong to you, acts of thievery. Thievery is rampant in our day and age. You have everything from identity theft to packages being taken right off your front porch that are being videotaped to taking copper wire from work sites. <laughs> I saw in the news the other day, this guy pulls up, has a Caltrans little orange vest, and he's yanking out all this copper wire right out in the middle of the day, taking it and selling it, making money off of it. Crazy. Deaths. When you move from a rented house or an apartment, you are to leave what is not yours, okay? Don't take the air conditioner. When you check out of a hotel, don't take the blankets or the towels. They're not yours. I knew a guy who worked at a hospital. He went to his house one day and all his towels said USC County Medical Center. <laughs> and I was always wondering why he wore those green smocks all the time. It's not right. <laughs> Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Verse 22 continues with covetousness. That means a greedy desire, an appetite for what belongs to others. The word is used in various ways. It's used for sexual immoralities, Ephesians 5.3, but fornicators and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. For material possessions, Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's connected with extortioners in 1 Corinthians five ten. Covetousness comes in different forms. It can display itself in a covetous desire uh, for prestige that can lead to evil ambition. It can display itself in the desire for power 
and can be displayed in a heartless cruelty. Exodus 20.17 sums this up. He says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And next on the list here is wickedness. Evil deeds, evil character, evil nature, evil disposition. And we are living in a very evil world that is growing more evil as the days go on. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So the spiritual conflict that we are in is not really physical. It's not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not against human opponents. Our real enemy are the spiritual forces behind the scenes that seek to control and destroy our lives. Wickedness abounds. And our need is to make sure that we turn to God who is our powerful and trustworthy Lord of protection and victory. And we are called to lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls, James 1.21. In the middle of verse 22, Jesus goes on and lays out deceit. It means to bait, to decoy. To deceive people, cunning treachery. It was, de- it was by deceit that the leaders of the Jews plotted to kill Jesus. Mark 14.1 says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery, that's the word deceit, and put him to death. 1 Peter 3.10 says to us, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Next in, in the list here is lewdness. It carries the idea of unrestrained, shameless behavior, debauchery, with the connotation of open and flagrant indecency. And boy, don't we see that going on around us in this day and age. You have everything from Miley Cyrus to people walking around nude in Times Square and up in San Francisco. Lewdness is rampant. Romans 12, 13 and 14 commands us, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness, And lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Next on the list is an evil eye. This is the Hebrew term that means to look with ill will at another person because of who he is or what he has. It has the meaning of a sinister eye. An eye that views another person with fierce and grudging displeasure. And it, an evil eye is connected to envy and jealousy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. The next on the list is blasphemy. Slander is what it means. 
blasphemy directed at either God or man. Romans 2.24 tells us that the name of God is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles. And we see this happening in our day and age. In Luke 22, 64 and 65, when Jesus was on the cross, it says that they blindfolded him and struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things, it says, they blasphemously spoke against him. Next on the list is pride. It means arrogance, the sin of self-praising of a self-praising person who has contempt for everyone but himself. It's the opposite of a humble heart. It's one of the characteristics of the end times. In 2 Timothy 3.2 it says, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance and the evil way. And last here on the list, our Lord states foolishness at the end of verse 23. Foolishness, it it means stupidity, but not in the sense of, of, of intellectual stupidity, but in the sense of moral wrongheadedness, a person with a lack of sense. A, par- a person with, where there's no spiritual discernment. And I found it interesting that this is the final word in the list, as if Jesus is saying that uh, all of these that he just mentioned are the result of not being able to think properly. The heart can only function according to God's purpose as it becomes purified by him. Otherwise, man is incapable of doing many foolish things. And this list in verses 21 and 22 should convince anyone, any person in their right mind, that the human heart is deceitful, above all, and desperately wicked. So Jesus concludes in verse 23. He says, All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Jesus took the focus of attention away from external rituals, and he gets to the core. He gets to the heart of the matter. He places the need for God to cleanse a person's evil heart. Jesus makes it clear that purity is an inner spiritual quality that comes from within, not an outward physical exercise. And this is radical if you think that humankind is basically good. Education and culture, it's not, it can't redeem the heart in society. Social reform will not do it. There is no power in the world that can make a bad heart good. Only the gospel can do that. Only Jesus can transform a person's heart. And God knows that man is a sinner and is unable to curb or change his own nature. And that is why he sent his son to die for your sins and for mine. That is what Christmas is all about, you guys. A radical change in the human heart is what is needed. There must be a radical new birth. And this is what many of us here today have committed to in our lives. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then I love this next line. He says, and such were some of you. Past tense. This is who we were, not what we are to be now as God's redeemed. So we need to ask the Lord to help us to be honest with ourselves and to examine our thoughts and our actions. The Pharisees' problem is that they had a defective theology of man and sin. And as a result, they they treated outward symptoms with their legalism rather than dealing with the root cause, the heart. They made the outside of the cup clean but ignored the uncleanness within. The sin of the Pharisees is that they did not allow God to deal with their hearts. It was all religious. It was all outward. They had become self-deceived, unwilling to admit to the evil that was within them. And folks, we don't want, want to make that mistake today. Our heart's cry should be constantly like Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your transforming power, Lord, that can change a person's heart. I pray that you would continue to change every believer's heart in here today, Lord. Work with us. Lord, help us to yield to you constantly, Lord. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, that uh, has walked away from you or doesn't even know you, has never given that heart to you, Lord, as everyone's praying, that today would be the day of salvation. And maybe this person is here today and and is beat up from life. Maybe the enemy has ripped off their heart. Maybe they've allowed their heart to do things that it should not have done. Lord, meet with them today as only you can, Lord. Restore what the enemy has ripped off. Let them know that it's not too late. That you can take hold of our hearts and make it new. That's what you do, Lord. And as we're praying, if there's anyone here that that fits that, Lord, I pray that you would give your heart to the Lord right now. If there's anyone here, we'd like to pray for you and give you a Bible and share with you a little bit. If that's you today, just slip your hand up really quick so we can acknowledge it and pray with you. If you're here today and you'd like to give your life to Jesus, just raise your hand. God's dealing with us right now. Is there anyone here? Father, you know the hearts, Lord. You know the heart. And you can pray this right where you're at. And you can just say, Father, forgive me for all I've done. Forgive me for my sins. Give me a brand new heart. I want to walk with you from this day forward. I give you my heart now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.